Welcome to another pint with Shawnee B coming to you from my hometown of Dublin. I'm in the north side in Fibsborough and I have a very interesting conversation about to happen. I hope all about sustainability, diversity, the role of businesses in the community, transparency, and I hope wither capitalism. Uh, my guest is Thomas Serkovich. He is the CEO of Business in the Community, which is a company or organization I just heard about recently, and I'm intrigued to find out more about what it does and its its goals and aims. So welcome, sir. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. Not at all. You come from Argentina. I do indeed, far, far away. What part? Buenos Aires? No, from a city called Cordoba, which Cordoba. is in the, in the middle of the country. It's Mendoza, yes. near Mendoza. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I've been there. I've been yeah, to well, wine and I went to Ushuaia. Oh, fabulous. Yeah. Which was actually, from a business in the community point of view, when I went to Ushuaia, have you been to Ushuaia? Yeah. So I remember the Argentine government back in the day, they decided they were going to make televisions and everything down there. Indeed. And there's just these huge factories of yeah. sort of, it didn't really work. It just sort of destroyed no. the beauty of the place a bit. Yes. <laughs> it was ridiculous in that they wanted to um, generate employment in a very unpopulated area. Yes. So that was the idea. And there's a lot of tax incentives for companies who uh, manufacture there. Yeah. But because there's nothing, all the components were coming from all over the world. Yeah. So imagine the environmental impact, blah, blah, blah. And then assembled there. And if it was your TV was assembled in Patagonia, in Ushuaia, then you can take it out tax free um, with some sort of yeah. special incentives. It didn't work, right? Unfortunately, no. no. Yeah, yeah, the other yeah. thing I love about it, for listeners who don't know where Ushuaia is, it's the most southerly city in the world. Uh, it's right at the bottom of Argentina and uh, Chile near um, Tierra del Fuego. And one of the things I loved about it is that that shipping route under South America was one of the most treacherous seas. Yeah. Master Cape, and Commander. Cape Horn, yeah. Cape Horn Master yeah, and Commander yeah. being a great example. Yeah. And then there's an actual little channel, the Beagle Channel, that cuts right across and avoids you having to do it. And it took yeah, them. Yeah. And we two, almost took us to war with Chile I several know. times. Yes, so, yeah. I know. It's contentious, but it's absolutely beautiful. I think that's one of the best ways of describing my home it is country. It's, uh, it's, it's beautiful, but it's just a complicated part of the world, I guess. So what was it like growing up there? Because we're, you, you look similar vintage. I'm late 40s and you're not maybe younger than me, but what was it like growing up there? It was really nice. So the, what I like about Argentina is that nobody is from Argentina. Right. So we're, it's a bit like the States. So my father's family are Eastern European Jews okay. uh, that em had emigrated 120 years ago. Another part of his family were London Jews. My mother's family were Italian and they emigrated after World War II. It, it was really nice growing up with all this mixture of stories, mm. of anecdotes, of your Italian granny telling you about food and traditions and your your father's father, my, my, my grandfather, to, uh, insisting on some of the yeah. sort of the Jewish rites and, and celebrations. So that was that was really nice. And, and there's the famous Welsh contingent as well, which absolutely. is what brought you the rugby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Welsh and Irish as yeah, well. So yeah. uh, actually my my partner is, is Irish right. and uh, his family come from, from the West, originally from County Galway, right. uh, but then they're based in, in Mayo. The most prominent figures in the development of the Argentinian education system was an Irish priest, uh, Father Anthony Fahi. Okay. And uh, when you go in Buenos Aires, you probably went to see this famous cemetery, yes, Recoleta, yeah, yes, where yes. Eva Perón is yeah. buried, etc. On the main avenue or the main street in the cemetery, there's two Irishmen buried with massive statues. One is Father Fahi, right. and the other one is an Almirant uh, William Brown, who was from Mayo, and he, he was the founder of the Argentine Navy. Okay. So there's a, I read about him before. Yeah. There's yeah. an amazing connection yeah. of stories, and then you would go to another part of the country, and there's a big uh, Swiss and German immigration right. and same in the north uh, we had from uh, Lebanon and Syria so actually we had a president of Argentina whose uh, parents were born in, in, in Syria so it, right. it, it was very nice. Um, so the things when I was growing up were the two big things for a Dublin boy growing up were 1978 World Cup win mm -hmm. Mario Kempes and all those boys 
quickly followed by the Falklands War, which was <laughs> had a huge impact here, Las Malvinas. Yeah. I think the Irish were kind of on your side a bit in there. <laughs> but uh, what was it like for you during that time? Or was it well, I was a bit small, to be honest. Okay. So I was born in 78. Oh, you're 10 years younger <laughs> than I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. Uh, I just still think I'm younger I, than I am. That's the problem here. <laughs> and, and, and that I look old, so no, that's no, fine. That was, that was, <laughs> I feel really bad. <laughs> Oh, no, don't. Oh, so um, you, were a, you were a World Cup baby nearly. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> and, and, and obviously I can't remember the, 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 the Malvinas uh, war. But, uh, that was too. The, the, the military government uh, left a lot of scars mm. and mm. it left a very divided society. So yeah. that's, and, and, and that's still visible today. Yeah. It, it's the economy that just keeps... I mean, we, we talk about mistakes. Ireland having a turbulent yeah. economy, oh, but well, it's, uh, Argentina's kind of the... Yeah. My, my father would tell me that through his life he has seen like four or five crises of the size yeah. of the Irish one. Yeah. So it's, it's fascinating because it's a country that has amazing talent. and Education it, is good. Education is amazing. You have amazing scientists, mm. business people. You see Argentinians all over the world yeah. that are doing really well. But a terribly bad political system and, and an economy that doesn't take off. It must be a cakewalk working here because <laughs> we have a lot of similar issues here yeah. going back. Yeah. And, the, and so were you good at school? Were you always a, a smart person? School? No, I think I was average. Right. No, nothing, nothing. You know, I, I just think normal, normal, normal life. nothing that I could highlight. And then secondary, interesting, I was three years in a state-owned sort of school. Mm. And then and my family moved to Chile. So What was your father working at? So he was working in a family business. Okay. They were providing uh, construction materials, okay. so mainly wood. That business was uh, wound down and closed, probably yeah. because of some economic crisis, crisis yeah. or another, I can't remember. And then we just decided to try luck again. So what did you just go to Santiago? Yes, yeah. and I was uh, 15. And Santiago was also very interesting because mm. it was in, in a transition. It was their second democratically elected president yeah. after a lot of... Uh, Pinochet and yeah. dictatorship. And then I had my moment of rebellion, so I said, I want to go back to Argentina to do university. Yeah. Argentina, is, it's got a really great vibe about it. Really it has, but, but I think we are such complicated human beings because we are this all these immigrants who feel very European and, and you will talk to people in, in Argentina who will tell you, no, no, I'm Swiss or I'm Irish. And yeah. They can't speak English and they've never <laughs> left the country, but they would genuinely tell you, I am, I'm European. And yeah. So it's a country that never made friends with anybody in the region. Yeah. So it doesn't get along. I mean, it gets along normally okay, but yeah. it's not that bond or relationship with other countries. And, and I think we're very conflicted people. I don't know if you know that Buenos Aires is the city that after New York has the most number of psychologists. I did read that somewhere. Per person or yeah. per capita. That tells you a lot about who we Everyone's are. Everyone's <laughs> trying to find out who they are. Exactly, yeah. And, 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 and then there's an interesting side of it mm. because people will be very open and tell you, yeah, no, I have to go to my, my, my psychologist. And, yeah. and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a part of your life. Yeah, I think Whereas, the whole world is going that way now. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you, what did you, you finish, nice. what did you study in, sc in so school? So I studied international relations. I wanted to be a diplomat. But then I did a, an internship with a government office and I didn't like it. I, yeah. I didn't feel very connected to yeah. the type of work. And I said, okay, what am I going to do? I have no idea. So I finished my studies. Then I tried to get a job. Impossible. At that time, Argentina was a type of country where, you know, unless you had an IT or legal or accounting, there was no interest for other profiles. Yeah. So I got a, a scholarship to uh, go to Italy. Okay. to Bologna okay, been there. and I did a, a master's there it was also in international relations but it was more oriented towards international management so how big multinationals are managed etc and that's when it all started <laughs> was it from there from Bologna you came to Dublin yeah what made you come to Dublin so one of my teachers in Argentina talked about a concept which is very unfortunate to all the Dutch listeners in your audience because it's called the, the double standard or the Dutch standard. And that basically, it's a very old economic theory, very conservative one that says that if you're a multinational and in your head office, you comply with certain laws and regulations and behaviors, when you move to a country that the law, the regulation is of lower level, you should adapt to that lower level of compliance because otherwise you would be losing competitiveness. 
Because if you're very rigid and you respect working hours, minimum wage, human rights in a country where nobody else does, you're losing. Yeah, I mean, it's a dangerous old, path to travel. Very old, absolutely. But anyway, that then made me connect with the economic crisis in Argentina, where part of the of, of the big mistake that everybody did, government mainly, but it had been also with financial institutions, where they uh, were part of international groups, uh, English, Italian, you name it, Spanish. And when the crisis started, they sort of made a big, clear separation between the, their businesses in Argentina and the head office. And, uh, and you could say that, that the, their behavior hadn't been very ethical or very mm. responsible. Mm. And that's when somebody said to me, well, maybe you should, if you're interested in that, look at corporate responsibility. And I right. said, what the hell is that? Yeah. And that's when we started investigating and I started throwing my CV everywhere sending it to different um, countries and organizations and that's when I got connected to So this is early 2000s? It was 2002. Okay. So let's go into maybe jump forward to where you are now. You're yeah. CEO of this company called Business in the Community. Yeah. Just briefly explain some of the examples of projects mm. that you do and what, you, what, what, what your role is. Of course. Business in the Community is an amazing organization and I have to be biased there and say it because it was set up in 2000 alongside with our sister organization which is called the Community Foundation for Ireland and we can come back to that it's amazing they also mm -hmm. do great work on philanthropy and corporate giving which is which is amazing business the community was set up as an organization that would try and raise the standards of business around the concept of responsible businesses, are competitive businesses, are successful businesses. Mm -hmm. At a time where the, the, the understanding of what responsible business is was, okay, you pay your salaries and, taxes. Uh, and you pay your taxes and that's how you contribute to the economy mm -hmm. and then you do a bit of charity giving or a bit of philanthropy, which is fine. Yeah. And there used to be this expression at the time, which was, it was called the German's wife's charities because, you know, back to the old where obviously the children would have been a man and he would have had a wife yeah. who would have every now and then sent a check to the children's hospital yeah. or the opera or the... Get the name on a hospital or something. Exactly, uh, on a wing of a, of a university or something like that. And if mm. there's something that I have learned to appreciate from this country is solidarity. And everywhere you go, there's this thing about sponsor somebody to go and do this and, and, and buy a chocolate, but it costs more because it goes to the other and the yeah. table quiz. And it's so grassroots. We do that, yeah. It's it no, and you do it really. I mean, well. just 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 to pause there for a second, because I, I, that was one of the things I wanted to talk to you mm. about. We are very good at that, and we we I, I've often said that I don't I don't think our government kind of I think our government leans in too much on that. The best example, I guess, is homelessness, where the idea that homelessness is fixed by charity and not by government, who are funded by taxes. But, you know, this, this whole idea of leaning into the Irish people to just give more, give more, give yeah. more, on top of the sort of taxes they pay is a sort of an issue that we kind of, we don't really grumble about, but it's a real issue here. We are quite high on the league of donators in yeah, terms of, yeah, of, of global. Yeah. I mean, how do you see, how do you see that? To me, it's two separate issues. Government has to be efficient and they have to do their job. They, yeah. You have to look at how you incentivize through giving, through tax breaks, through welfare. You know, there's, there's an amazing welfare state in this country mm -hmm. and it's en enviable. And, and, and many other countries would like to have it. The question is how you make people transit out of welfare and into education and employment. Mm -hmm. and that's a lot of what we do here in, this, right. in the community. I think that then if on top of that you have a, a, a society that for a million reasons, and I probably can understand one or two because they're all very yeah. complex and because of legacy of past or things that we mm. lacked 150 years ago have made us with a strong sense of community and generosity, I think that has to be enhanced and welcomed and, mm. and, and promoted as much as possible. Mm. And Who funds business in the community? So we are funded from two sources. So this is a membership organization. If you want to come here, you have to pay a fee. Based on number of employees, turnover? Uh, the majority of our members are quite large companies. Okay. And what they do is the, there's sort of three different levels tiers, of, okay. of, of tiers. <clears throat> and depending on how much service or how much engagement they want to have with us, they would pay level one or two. Okay. And then we have a top level. 
and not only have to pay more to be on that top level, but it's a quite a smart business model, which I have nothing to do with it, right. and I have to admit, but it's really smart. Not only you have to pay more, but you have to have passed or you have to have obtained a standard on responsible business practice, Good. which we created uh, 10 years ago. Yeah. It's called business working responsibly. What we do is we analyze your management systems. Mm -hmm. We look at your policies, your practices, how you measure the results of what you do across the board, how you treat your employees, how you treat your customers. Mm -hmm. Do you recycle? Does anyone ever fail that? Well, that, <laughs> you know, we were asked that yesterday at okay. a meeting because we we're trying to get a company to sign up to it. And I said, no, because the way it works is that we, this is not about uh, trying to spot your mistakes or- You or, tell or, you how to do better. You. Exactly. So right. we, we accompany the, the, we go with the company mm. through a process, we advise them. And then when they feel they're ready, we get out of the way and we bring a third party because I cannot be advising you and then giving you the, the award. Yes. So I want to roll up the sleeves here a bit because I, you know, we have a Venn diagram uh, that meets somewhere in the middle around this because my background, as I spoke said to you, is in strategy planning and advertising. Yeah. I have some great stories, for example, going back to 1996, where uh, one of my big clients in Ireland when I was working here was Nestle, mm -hmm. and I worked on their chocolate business. And one day, uh, the students of UCD decided to boycott all of the chocolate products, which is, mm -hmm. you know, Kit Kat and Yorkie and Fruit yeah. Pastilles and all these brands from the stores all around the campus because Nestle's behavior on baby milk in Africa yeah. was apparent incentivizing doctors to get mothers to use baby milk and there was water issues and all this kind of yeah. stuff. And the chairman came into me and he, uh, Paddy Marr, and he said to me, what do I do? And I said, well, are you behaving like this in Africa? And he went, and this is before the internet, right? There's no internet, there's no Twitter, there's no Facebook. And he was like, yeah, but it's not us here in Ireland. And I said, well, unfortunately, the way the world is going, it's still going to apply to you. And, uh, you know, the second example was in Australia, 1998, again, before CSR. I mean, CSR in advertising terms are putting something back or even whitewashing consumers with your tales of great behavior started with the, the bad companies, of you know, the, the oil companies, the cigarette companies, you yeah. know, who were guilty of yeah. the very products that they made. Yeah. But then it starts drifting in, you know, so we were, we were in Australia working and, and I, I, I did a pitch to, to one of the big insurance companies there. And I said, you know, you should say that by 2020, we're going to remove, say, homelessness from Australia because we believe as a house insurer that everyone deserves a house. Yeah. And they looked at me as if I had five heads. I'm like, what are you talking about? We're not going to do that. That's the government's job. And so, you know, all of, as time is going by, this, this CSR, putting something back, responsibility has been growing and growing because customers are demanding it and because they can weed out through the internet behavior course, by, by companies course, yeah. that is contrary to maybe what they're saying or unethical. Tell me a little bit about that whole continuum as you've seen it to where it is today and from where it's come from. It's very interesting what you're asking because that's the, the real story. Yeah. And when I started, this was very much, as I was saying earlier, philanthropy and just gave and, mm. and that's all. So what I see is that companies realize that the behavior of their clients or their customers is changing. And that's when they start trying to get more sharp on this type of, of issues. Whether they see it as a, as a business opportunity so I'm all about the environment and recycling and I don't want this and I don't want that. So therefore, here you are, pay more. I remember when I came here, there was only one coffee shop in Dublin in 2002 where you could get fair trade coffee. Can't remember the name, it was in town, but you had to pay 20 cents extra. Seven or eight years later, McDonald's Ireland announces that 100% of all the sugar, tea, coffee was certified fair trade. Yeah. So that to me is, is, is an amazing evolution. In some cases, you do it because you think it's the right thing, mm. fine. But I actually like when they tell me, I do it because I'm gonna win more, more customers. So, I mean, you, you, you come from advertising, and I don't know what's your take on Dove and the campaign for real beauty, mm. which in some countries was quite inspirational in terms of all that message, beauty yeah. is inside you, and changing the paradigms of mm -hmm. the models that will portray the, the, the products. And I think it's very interesting to see where those are. Well, it's a fantastic example to ask me because I used to work on Olay. Okay. Uh, which would be Dove's primary competitor okay. with Procter & Gamble. The Dove brand does have a very deep DNA about showing 
normal women in the advertising. They've had that even in the 70s and 80s, and then they sort of leaned into that away from the sort of glitzy model, big name kind of stuff. And it, it, it polarized. First of all, Procter & Gamble, my client, said, oh, that doesn't work. We've tried it, which is a terrible thing for clients to say because you may not have tried it properly. Yeah. And they were extremely dismissive of it. The issue as to how successful it was, you know, I often say that, that, that it doesn't really matter almost what you do with your advertising I've, ne- I've, I've never seen risky advertising like that damage a brand. Dove is still around. It's still a very big player. But the messages it was sending out to me were really important to young girls because, I mean, advertising, one of the reasons I'm out of it is that I got disillusioned with the sort of ethical nature of the ad business, which is atrocious. It's one of the great businesses where people, you know, sleep like babies but don't realize the fact that they're manipulating greed and they're telling lies and they're doing all these kind of things. So, you know, yeah. I won't be getting any more jobs in advertising from this, but I don't mind. But, you know, the Dove campaign in terms of its uh, bravery, in terms of it doing something that nobody else was doing, which is what I believe you, you have to do if you want to do proper advertising. You should not look like your competitor, like all car ads no. look the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But more importantly, the idea that there was a, a sisterhood and that, that there was a pushback against beautification of teenage girls, beautification, having always to look your, your best. Yeah. And I also had some women going, I don't know why they're doing that. They should be showing, I want to see what I could look like, not what I do look like. And so there was a, but with all of that tension that's going on there, that's a great example yeah. of advertising that works. Absolutely. Because even if you don't like it, you still are thinking and talking about it and it's getting great traction on social media and all that kind of stuff, which really built it. Yeah. So it, it is a good example. You then start pulling back another layer and go, okay, now we're talking about Unilever. Yeah. who own Dove, okay? Yeah. Now let's go, go and have a look at a few of the other Unilever products. Mm-hmm. That behavior is not cross Unilever. And that's where I get a little bit sort of skeptical, okay? So they've manipulated an idea. But, you know, you go into some of their other products and it's just like they're just reinforcing stereotypes and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, yes, a nice win, but was it done for honest purposes or was it done as a gimmick? That's where I would yeah. sort of well, finish on that. Well, you're asking a good question, but just on, on, on Unilever, <laughs> Unilever also bought a, a brand called Ben & Jerry's. Yeah. And they do amazing work yeah. as well. Yeah. But they're one of the paradigms that we look at in, in mm. corporate responsibility, actually. They have this thing called the um, Sustainable Living Plan. Yeah. And it's actually a very transparent way of demonstrating yeah. how they have a strategy across the business, yeah. how they're improving on it. And again, obviously, this advertising and, and, and the public face of, mm. of, of these companies, it's, it's really fascinating. And there's some amazing examples there yeah. as well. But I also think that what's on the back. So how are you doing to improve on the packaging? Mm. Or how are you doing to improve on the welfare of the people that collect the yeah. lion's tea, which is also owned by Unilever, by Unilever yeah. and all, all the other products? I think that's, that's what, it, what it really it really happens. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. Unilever and P&G have got big departments that look after this part of their business because it is mm. critical. You know, they, they are being very socially aware and socially, socially conscious. Mm. It's just... Let's talk about alcohol, you know, the mm. whole conversation there is, and I have seen quite a lot of change in this country. Yeah. Uh, and, and I remember talking to, to companies like Diageo when before the mm-hmm. whole Drink Aware campaign started, mm. first ever clips that were showing the, what, um, don't wait, don't see a great night wasted, which was, uh, in my view, a very good, great line. A, a very nice campaign. It was, it was very simple and it was <laughs> very real. And it's probably a bit different from all the ones that you see the car crashing and all yeah. the, which was, which, which was the consequences. Mm. This was like nothing <laughs> happened, but you end up looking like a total silly yeah. uh, with the girl you wanted yeah. to connect with that night. And no, I mean, that, happen. again, you've picked two very good examples to talk about. I mean, my, I'm a big drinker and I drink a lot of Diageo and other products. <laughs> um, and, and we have a problem in this country. We are one of the biggest binge drinker countries in Europe. We have alcoholism running thick through our veins going back three, four hundred years. One of the reasons Guinness was actually invented was the Archbishop asked if they could invent a thicker, more substantial drink that was less alcoholic. So men were not just drinking whiskey and beating their wives up when they went home or whatever. So we have this. We also have an extremely powerful drink lobbyist that going on here, which is 
fighting for every single yeah. win that it can. The fact that they do drink aware and that they advertise to drink sensibly, again, is a bit cigarette to me. It's like they wouldn't do it, but they feel they better so that they can keep their advertising. The advertising is looking like it's going to get completely more and more restricted. They're pulling them out of sports sponsorships. Yeah. And again, to be fair to Guinness and a lot of these brands, they have put so much money into things like the GAA here and other sports Absolutely. that, you know, what happens when that go when that sponsorship goes? And is that sponsorship fair? And should you be showing sports people and people drinking? I don't know. So there's a, I've worked on a lot of alcohol products and I, I you know, it's, a, it's very difficult tightrope to walk. And I, I'd hate to be that lady who heads up their, their lobbying. And there's jobs and there's pubs and there's, sure. you know, the, the social fabric of society here based around having a, having a pint. Yeah. So that's it. So let's just take that as things up. Where does where, and you? I know Diageo are one of your clients. Where does uh, what would I say? Members, one of your yeah, members. Exactly. Yeah, not clients. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Clients sounds a bit grubby. So where does that landscape of say booze fall in your kind of when you, when you look at that in terms of yeah. business in the community? Maybe we can use some examples or what do? You, yeah. So back to this uh, assessment that we do that right. leads to this this certification. What we try and do there is make them understand what is the connection between what you do with your employees and what you do with your local community and that how that goes back to your business. The case of the Agile is interesting because they're a multinational, so, sure. so obviously they have massive teams of people working on this because they're acutely aware of, of the situation. Where we would have helped them was to really think about how they can make an impact in, in, in their community. Yeah. And, and, and it's interesting because nothing is black and white, isn't it? It's not like the beer. You have all these things about the companies, but then you say, if, if we go to Dublin 8 <laughs> and you say Guinness, the, the, you know, the awe of respect and, and, yeah. and, you know, and the housing and the first medical facility yeah. and, and the brand, it, it plays a significant role. So what impact they could, they could, they could work there? The Diageo thing, and we, I'm not picking on these brands, but you know, in, in any market, the big players are the ones that you just use for example purposes. And again, talking about what you just said about them, you know, I worked as the head of strategy for Guinness in Asia, 2003, four, five, six sort of time. So right at the height of the boom here. Diageo, one of their biggest strategies back then was they were going to shut down James's Gate Brewery and move it to Park Royal over in London, okay? Quite apart from the, the stupidity of doing that for a brand that is anchored in Dublin, right? Like yeah. the in brand the DNA. The well, yeah. we know that the, the actual, it's from Ireland. It is yeah. the Ireland thing. They were going to make it in Britain. Oh, last place you should do it. Because the property was so yeah. expensive and they realized that they were sitting on a close to a trillion dollars worth of properties and they were just going to keep the storehouse open, have a small still. Now, the only reason that didn't happen was because the prop, as far as I know, and apologies mm. to you if I've got all this wrong, but I think I've got it right, was that the, the bust hit. Mm. And suddenly their property was not worth as much. And we said, oh, we changed our mind, we're keeping it. Now, the, the, the damage to the community mm. that them moving out would have caused Dublin would have been huge. And yeah. not just from an employment situation or whatever, just from a kind of a... It's it, it just a kick to the to the stomach. Do they just use you as a sort of, yeah, thanks very much, and then they go off and, and, and make their own sort of minds? Or do you have kind of, do you feel like you have power? Sometimes. sometimes Depends on the do, company. Sometimes we don't. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I can tell you there's companies we are knocking at the door and saying you should be doing this and this and yeah. this, and they never do it. We have success in some areas, yeah. and, and in others we don't. But I, I I don't necessarily talk about about Diageo, but I sure, remember yeah, when um, Coca Cola they had the bottling plant. Oh, it's it's uh, it was in Dublin twelve. I can't remember where, and there was a process to move it out to Northern Ireland mm -hmm. because they had set up one of the most mechanized uh, bottling plants in the world, etc. Yeah. I, I think those processes are also a reality in business. Yes. And I'm, the bottom line is that if I'm a Diageo investor or a Coca-Cola investor, I need a certain return. And what we are arguing is that you should be able to get that return by doing the right thing. And mm. maybe it's not a question of whether Diageo will stay forever in, 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 in the Dublin 8 area. But if you were to exit, how do you do it in a responsible way? Mm. So we, we would speak with, with, with some of our members, for instance, on, well, if you're going to exit a community, 
how do you do it responsibly? Mm. And there is a process and maybe you can set up a fund, a legacy fund, and that can generate support for the community over a number of years. The reputational part, I'm not a big expert on that. And, yeah, and I'm yeah. sure they would have had their, their discussions. Yeah, that's but I think it's we an would have had chats doing about that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but I think it's an interesting way of, 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 of looking at how, how this whole process can be managed. Mm. So at the end of the day, if you know people were let go during the crisis, yeah. I know that some companies were letting go people by text message and others yeah. were having a more developed process whereas yeah. they were having conversations and helping them with their outplacement mm. and trying to look at different alternatives to firing people so maybe we would all work well, maybe, one yeah, month I mean, less a year and, and we sort it out but back to your question because I don't want to avoid it the, the successes are are somewhere and at some point so uh, maybe we are very successful on um, on the communication part so we mm. advise them on how to better articulate what they're doing because it's quite complex this whole thing yeah and there's a lot of cynicism we are if there's something that Irish and Argentinian <laughs> are we have a lot of is cynicism so I know I wrote down here lip service <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah. and greenwashing yeah, and all yeah, of yeah. that so of course yeah there is that uh, but do you feel like you have integrity as a company I'm going to go off the names naming names but you know supposing company X yeah. you go into and you you know that they're not hmm. you know that they're doing something that they shouldn't be doing and you've I guess written a memo to them about it but like they are they have no compunction to you to follow what your advice is yeah. but at what point do you go um well, you're now no longer a member of Business of the Community because you're behaving this way. Yeah, well, that's the million dollar question. Has it ever happened? No. Okay. And the reason why is that we don't consider we're here the one to judge on, on who's right or who's wrong. Okay. So if you want to be a member, uh, you have to uh, comply with the law, be responsible to, to the basics, the minimum. Yeah. And, uh, and we would demand you to do so. And then... Uh, we believe that it's better that you're with us and that we try and work with you yeah. over time because these things are, are not easy. Also, there is a question, okay, let's go back to banks and, and, and you could have said, well, you know, they're all terrible and let's destroy them. Okay, but then what do you do the day after? How, how do you start working again? How do you yeah. rebuild trust? And part of that process is, is by engaging in you this responsible mortgages. business. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's about engaging on that responsible business agenda. Mm. Uh, so, so that's where we don't feel we should say, well, your company is, is not good because but you're then, not But then who does whistleblow? I mean, who... Mm. There is nobody. I mean, the banks is a good example. Stuff gets uncovered that's been rife, not just across one bank, but many in a cartel situation. And there's no one going, hey, you know, and, and there's no one even going to jail or court, hardly anyone, for it. Yeah, yeah. This is the, the sort of tooth, not the toothlessness, but the, the fact that you're agreeable and you're approachable and the, the, the organization has got members that believe and say they want to. But there's no one really policing this. I mean, another good example, which we, I'm sure is maybe coming onto your agenda, is the whole AI thing and where... Where, where artificial intelligence is going to go versus communities and, yeah. and, and how it affects people, how it affects us. You know, we'll, we'll yeah, be all yeah, be yeah. working for robot masters in yeah. the future, you know. But that's creeping, you know. Yeah. Things happen creeping and then suddenly, you know, an oil tanker blows up off the coast of somewhere and yeah. pollutes everything and yeah. BP are in trouble or Shell yeah. are in trouble. Yeah, yeah. Because the, 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 I, you know, have my advertising man's guilt that I want to put something back. But you get a lot of frustration, for example. You can, you, of course you get it sometimes. Just one thing, obviously, if you're breaking the law, you're breaking the law. And, yeah. and, and there's nothing but to But that doesn't matter half away. the time. You know? No, come on. Well, <laughs> but no, you know what I mean. I mean, it's like, yes, I got it. But there's lots of companies that are breaking the law in, or, or not following the spirit of the law, which yeah. applies to taxation and everything. But yeah, okay, I got you. You have but, to. I mean, so obviously that, that's one thing. Then there's a space. You can say to yourself, uh, I, I, I never felt that I was being used, yeah, if, you, yeah. if you want to put it yeah. that bluntly. 
uh, or, or that somebody was using their membership of business in the community to cover up for right. whatever. And let's say BP, if they had been a member of business in the community here, w- what was behind that? It was an accident. Then you can talk about, okay, the proper processes weren't in place, mm-hmm. the health and safety policy, blah, blah, blah. They hadn't properly trained. It was poorly communicated. Okay, all of that can be improved on. So yeah. what you say? You're a horrible polluter, and get out, and, and I don't want to see you ever again? No. Or can I help you, or can we work on improving on this and this and this? Yeah. And if you're going to do something, because obviously they did a lot of investment in local communities sure. in, the, in the Gulf of Mexico, are yeah. you just going to do it splattering money all over? Are you going to have a strategic thing? Do you want somebody to tell you what are the key problems mm. in that local communities? So is it education or employment or empowerment or mm. diversity? And then maybe, that's where I think I could say, I think I played a pretty interesting role because this could have, the, the, the recovery would have been much worse if they had not worked with us. No, I like your idea that it's better to be in the room, hmm. is what you're saying. It's better to be a voice in the room than a yeah. voice, because if you're not in the room, they're going to probably behave 10 times worse. You know what I mean? There's a, no, some of these companies yeah, might, yeah. might. Exactly. I have to be careful yeah, with what yeah. I'm saying here. Yeah. Um, but one of the things I want to talk about is from the other side of the fence, right? So you have all these businesses here, and then you also, in your title, have community. Okay? Yeah. So one of the things, just to ramble for a bit, I've been home for a year, just to set some context. My view, coming back to my hometown after 21, 22 years away, is and I've said this on a podcast before, that the five things that were a problem mm-hmm. in 96 when I left are the same five things that are a problem today. Now, if you took 21 years off 1996, you'd be back in the 70s, they probably wouldn't be the same five things. So what is, you know, the five things I feel are, you know, that we have an education system in drastic need of reform. We have a health system that's creaking at the seams. We have a homeless situation that's embarrassing quite frankly I think and we have growing inequality and we have I think a government that doesn't use creativity or action and procrastinates that and I you know with Leo Varadkar and this new team that are in place now it's for the first time I've kind of felt they're young and they're they, they look like they're incorruptible and they look like they're not taking backhanders and they look like they're being fair I mean maybe some of them are but you know we we still are moving away from this old man politics that made Ireland what it was and it was awful, you know, growing up during the yeah. high regime. So I say we have this thing called the community. We have this thing called citizenship, being a citizen. You said at the top of the podcast how you see Ireland as being a great bunch of citizens who can rally around solidarity, etc. Let's just take the inequality point and, and you know, you, you also represent capitalism. I read one of your quotes in one of the interviews on your website where you said no business can succeed in a failing society which I think is a very interesting quote and then the issue is to what extent can business prevent societies from failing how do you see the Irish scorecard in that context yeah well that's a very good way of putting it around the question we have to ask ourselves my view is what can business do about those issues and what is the role of government and what's the role of business to me that's the first question that's when you can start seeing 20 years ago, did we have companies who were going out to empower local communities through employment, through education, which is some of the work we do here. Actually, mm. here we work with, with homeless people, we work with immigrants, we work with Syrian refugees. Uh, we go to over 100 schools that are designated DESH so that they have a very high uh, dropout rate. I, I believe in that. Mm. You know, I believe in, in uh, and there's a, a very interesting case study of um, a stu- it was done over, over a 10 year period of what has been the, the impact of a program where we do paired reading. Um, this is a, a pharmaceutical company up in Sligo. And what they do is that they go, I would say, I think it's once every fortnight to a school and, 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 and you're a, a young student and, and we read together. Um, and we talk, discuss about, well, did you understand what that was and what was the, the character feeling or where was it going or what happened in the end? Because they've done it over a long period of time, they were able to track how the reading comprehension improved over years. Okay. Now, obviously, it's not the only reason. Yes. But it is a, a reason. And So are these just employees from the factory yeah, go in and they exactly. do they befriend one child or? Uh, they do it on, on groups. Okay, yeah. groups. We, yeah. have, we have seven different education initiatives here in business mm. and community. 
which is on a one-to-one. So, for instance, you mentor a, a senior cycle secondary school student. Right. Uh, so you meet one hour a month over two years. In many cases, it should be it's, easy. It's uh, yeah. <laughs> of course, yeah. yeah, and that's the beauty. Yeah. And uh, but we have seen cases of young kids that would come and tell us that the only positive inspiration they had was that mentor that they met once a month over yeah. that period and that made them at least finish their studies and go into something well it's what a pint with shawnee b is trying to do it's it's really well, spotting this idea that there's so many kids out there who don't know what they want to do and are being pushed to do things that they're not even sure absolutely. mainly by their parents and having yeah. someone from yeah, with yeah, experience yeah. to be a mentor is is, is is fantastic it's powerful and just let me just sorry that part I think it's, it's very yeah, interesting no no some of our mentors from our companies were mentees themselves. Ah, great. So they developed such a great relationship that then they studied yeah. and they kept in contact with the company or with the mentor yeah. and then they applied and then they got the job. So it's really nice to see that. that that's the part, the part that I think is it's powerful. Yeah. Should business uh, replace the role of government in the health system? No. But we have a health crisis in the world, not only just in this country. And that's what sometimes... We forget. I don't know what's your view, but traveling helps you look at different realities. Half of the world is overweight and the other half is malnourished. And for the first time two years ago, there were more overweight, obese than malnourished. If I'm a bank, is that my problem? Probably not. But it is a problem if more and more your employees are calling in sick because they have more diabetes and they're feeling more unhealthy. So maybe if you start with the well-being and, and, and feeling better and you know that stress is the major cause of employee absenteeism in Europe. Mm-hmm. So if you start working around those issues and whether you're being harassed by your phone or your boss at 10 o'clock at night on a Friday, that to me is the power of mm-hmm. business in impacting on, on, on health. Mm-hmm. can enter into the whole issue of nutrition, information, yeah. transparency. At the moment there's a, a piece of European legislation it obliges large companies to disclose on their social and environmental information on gender uh, and other diversity factors within their whole um, workforce, but specifically the board of directors and the senior management team. When the European Commission explains the reason why, is because they felt that part of the very bad decisions made in many large companies that led to the economic crisis was because of this behavior, group behavior. So, I mean, I, I remember a few years ago when the crisis started, you could, there was a two-page spread in one of the Irish newspapers and you could see a hundred persons were probably the, the directors of most companies, you know, because yeah. I'm, I'm your chairman and you're my treasurer. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, 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 you know, it's like, so what, what would you see there? They were all white men over 60, 60 years of yeah. age who went to probably three or four uh, schools and mm-hmm. one or two business schools and universities. That's why they understand that diversity is really important for this. There's a great little segue, and that was Michael Moore's movie, Where Do We Invade Next? <laughs> had, a, had a great piece about Iceland when Iceland went down, and there was one bank that survived, and it was run by women. And their quote was, we don't invest in anything we don't understand. <laughs> and that was the only one that survived, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I mean, I'm a great believer in, you know, the ad business is appalling in terms of its uh, diversity, first, probably more so, and also its, its uh, oh. refusal to appoint women to, to, to more, more, more senior positions. So, like, at no point... I don't want to. I don't want to sound like I'm. I'm uh, not being supportive because I think. I think if anything, the world needs more of this of your type of organization. I want to try and before we finish, move into sort of a, a more macro view of your view of the world and where we might be going. But one of the things I want to talk about, which was an idea I had personally about twenty years ago, was this thing called PCAP. It was poverty Erad- eradication in Africa through capitalism. Now I wanted to talk about your views on capitalism and it's getting a lot of bagging in my view from a lot of people who don't really know what they're talking about mm-hmm. um, and also from the people who defend it they kind of go well what, what do you want marxism instead uh, and it's it, it clearly not that but they that's what they're they retaliate with and then before you know it if everyone gave all the food to everyone we'd all be sitting here with a bowl of rice i mean really stupid yeah. kind of arguments yeah. I, I'm more interested in what you're trying to do and what companies as capitalism could be doing better. A good example would be Scandinavian countries, mm. Norway, Sweden. For some sure. reason, everyone's ignoring them. They do pay extremely high taxes. Yes. But the people there 
get basic human rights kind of looked after. The prison system's a lot better. There's a lot of things going on up there. And, you know, I've been to Norway last year. They've got major problems with heroin and lots of other issues that they have to deal with. Mm. But this idea of capital, the, the poverty eradication in Africa idea was if every company gave what it did. Right? So it's not unlike your thing. But if, if an ad agency gave 20 creative people and they came up with 100 ideas that cost less than a dollar to make that would change the lives of Africans, right? And again, Africans hate being labeled Africans because each country has its own problems. So Absolutely. please go with me on that. And we would go into one country and <laughs> fix their issues. And then that would be their stamp of PCAP. And then another company that is a plastics or wood manufacturer would make this thing. And that's their stamp. And then a, a transport company would come in and say, well, we'll move it there. So at no point is there money. It's just companies, capitalist companies doing what they do to affect and make something that's like your this biro that will yeah. really help doctors in yeah. Mali or whatever, right? Of course, General Electric thought it was a great idea and a few companies went great, but of course they went, oh, how the hell do you get this organized? It's impossible. Mm. But you, what I'm trying to just get tease out of you is the idea that in my view, we need a new ism that's not unlike capitalism, but that's much more accountable. And we, we talked to the, earlier in the podcast about shareholders. Paul Polman, just to give Unilever yes. big ups, uh, because we weren't really picking on you earlier. Paul Polman came out a year and a half ago and said he's not doing quarterly yes. reviews for the, for the financial markets yes. because he said you're either with us for the long haul or you're not. Yes. And he can't move if every time there's a dip in profits of 1%, that all the shareholders get into a tizzy. And I love that idea, for yes, example. Absolutely. So maybe you only have to talk to the business community once a year. Yeah. I'm talking too long, but give me something, comments on your framework of where the world might be going from a capitalism point of view. That phrase that you were mentioning earlier, I actually stole it, I have to confess. <laughs> the, the one that businesses kind of prosper in societies that fail. And that to me is the essence. And it's about how we move towards models of more inclusive and sustainable economies. Yeah. So by sustainable, I mean the environmental part, you know, there's going to be 9 billion of us very soon mm. and we all need to live within the boundaries of nature and clearly we're already causing enough destruction and, and if we, we see the consequences. Now you'd name storms in this country, which we didn't used to, but you know, that's Quite a right. fancy thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, but so we need to, 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 to maintain the, the environment and to try and, and limit the, the terrible damage we're causing and we need to be inclusive. Yeah. And that is where I see, again, that business can play a big role. So for instance, you're talking about, uh, about Africa. There's a lot of business ideas that come from Africa, but we don't know they come from Africa. Right. So money transfer using mobile phones was invented in Kenya product that's called Mpesa. Mpesa means money in Swahili. And it, somebody had the idea because obviously the, the levels of, of people with bank accounts is super low there, mm. but they needed money because they have a, a relative in, in Europe that wanted to send them money yeah. or because they wanted to exchange things. They invented that concept. And now in the modern world or in the, in the industrialist world, we also do those things. And that also came from there. Uh, Yunus, which is the, the, the father of microcredit, uh, Mohammed Yunus in, uh, in Bangladesh, he set up that whole concept, but he also set up the basis for, for this whole uh, notion of the business at the bottom of the pyramid, which yeah. is the, the idea that you can do business and, and, and very interesting business initiatives were set up there. Mm. So that's the type of capitalism I believe in. Okay. I, I probably wouldn't, I, I couldn't care less about the label. It's whatever you call it. But I think there is a role there. And I see, maybe I'm, I'm biased because I'm long term uh, looking at this, even if it's once a year, Paul Pullman has to convince. Mm -hmm. And there is a great story about when Kraft uh, wanted to acquire a Unilever around a year ago and a whole part, a part, not, not, not the, it was not the only reason, but one of the reasons why Unilever shareholders rejected the the takeover was in relation to how Paul Pullman argued the whole values and how the sustainability agenda had been mainstreamed in the company yeah. and and Kraft mm -hmm. it was Kraft I used to work on Kraft as well didn't so, yeah. get that uh, did, wasn't at that level so I'm not saying we're going to change overnight either as I was saying because you want to make money or because you understand 
again that if uh, tomorrow there is a massive floods and half of this country is gone, half of your business is gone, mm. and of your employees and, 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 and of that engagement. It's urgent and it's, I think it's, we're going to recognize very soon that it's the only way of doing business. The, I mean, two more questions for you. One is the, um, just again, the 20 years I was away, come back to Ireland, we're a rock in the middle of the roughest sea and windiest sea in the world and we have I just can't understand why we have not become a leader in sustainable energy. I just cannot yeah. understand. In fact, we're we're burning more oil, I think, than, than we should be. Um, do you start? Uh, I know that's out of your bailiwick, but but it's interesting for you being from Argentina. Do you do you feel positive about where it's going, the world in general, or do you feel negative? No, I feel positive. We have to. We must. <laughs> Um, you were talking earlier about artificial intelligence and, and, and there's a whole thing that scares us a lot about it. But I think there's also amazing opportunities. And mm-hmm. if you think about how in, in the future maybe we'll be able to work half of the hours that we work and still be able to maintain because Scandinavia, that's a social contract that yeah. the Scandinavians signed mm. and they give whatever, 70% of their income to the state and mm. they get the best education in the world is in Finland. Yeah. And, and, and Norway's good as well, exactly. Denmark. And so I think that we just need to, to grow up in a sense. And I mm. think that is coming. And obviously we need to be very careful. We need to control and check, not take things for granted. Obviously there will be somebody who try to, to make advantage. But I think they're being singled out more and more. I am optimistic, again, maybe because we're standing here in the middle of the rock, as you were saying, but we're in the middle of a very prosperous Europe. If there's one thing though that scares me more than climate change is inequality. And, and the gap between rich and poor be, be, between countries is, is the part that I will be most concerned, that we're not able to, to generate enough prosperity around the world and that we're living better and better and at the expense of us living worse and worse. So I honestly believe that the business can do yeah, and I think, much. I think and, you're right. and we just need to, to go and keep on saying and, and, and repeating and repeating and repeating and, and that we will get there and we'll then drag the politicians with us as well. Hopefully. And the final thing I would say also on this equation is investors. Let's not forget because there's a lot of money there and they have a massive power. We haven't discussed much around that in Ireland, but if you go to, if you look at the biggest pension fund in the world, it's a Norwegian state fund, the oil fund. Is it, really? it is. And their investment policies are very strict. The, you mean ethically strict? Yes, yes, yes. So when they stopped investing in companies that were heavily reliant on coal, that caused a massive impact uh, across the industry. And, and, and when they stopped earlier than that, cluster munition companies, yeah. because obviously they need to get a lot of financial return because yeah. there's a big, massive pensions to pay for all the Norwegians. Yeah but with, with certain criteria. So again, we need to influence more the institutional investors and, and the high net worth individuals because that's where we can get a, make a, a big difference. I agree with you. Last question, what would you say to the young Thomas who was getting on the plane from Santiago to go to Buenos Aires, if you could whisper in his ear? Uh, I probably would tell him to maybe seize the opportunity every day and try and make a difference. I, I think I came probably late to this world of sustainability or whatever you want to call it because I think it's 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 highly rewarding and, and it's very exciting and at the end of the day it's about trying to change people's behaviors. We can all do it. You know, you don't necessarily need a massive organization and a massive brand behind you. We can all do it and I think that's what we should all be about. I totally agree. Thanks very much for being on the planet with Shawnee B. Thank you very much. Looking forward to the next one.